In the talk this evening, <clears throat> I'd like to speak about the marriage of the inner and the outer. Traditionally, <clears throat> spirituality has always been regarded as being somewhat divorced from the world, being seen as if there's almost two separate choices in life, that either you lead a spiritual life or you lead a life in the world. And rarely has there ever been a marriage of the two, a merging of the two. Instead, the two areas of our existence, the inner and outer, have often been regarded as being almost incompatible, as if it is almost an impossible task to bridge this gap that seems to exist between intensely spiritual life or a life in the world. In this historical divorce, that has been made and has been carried forward through many generations of spirituality. The life of the householder, which is our life, has been primarily, the one that has been primarily emphasized as a path for people in the world, has essentially been to cultivate inwardly faith and service and generosity. And the faith and the service and the generosity that people cultivate in the world and in themselves is a way of directly supporting those, usually ordained people, who have chosen to actually withdraw from the world and lead a, a primarily intensely contemplative life. The householder's inner work then is one of cultivating those qualities within themselves because it brings about a relationship between that seeming very intense withdrawn life and their own life. There is some relationship established. It is also a fact that historically and currently it is the people in the world, the householders, who have actually made possible the continuation of the Dharma. And yet, even in continuing to make that possible, those in the household life are often regarded to be somewhat on the periphery, the sidelines of the real path. As the Dharma, the teaching and the practice, has moved to the West, so many of the cultural assumptions are being questioned and explored, their validity and their truth being questioned so many of the belief systems that have tend to be built around spirituality and taken for granted are also being explored. What we do here in this center, the uh, engaging in intensive short-term or longer-term retreats, is a purely Western innovation. It is something that has been created, really, in this generation of people who want to prior to this generation of people who want to practice, there was no such thing as doing a retreat. First you had to establish a relationship with the teacher and usually the way, generally the way of practicing was considered much more of a lifelong or a very long-term commitment of withdrawing from the world of doing it in order to do so. 
we have created in this generation this environment where people who do not choose to withdraw from the world can still give a deep and sincere and direct attention to their own inner nourishment, to the development of their own inner wisdom, without having to make that choice of leaving the world as such. The questions of what it actually means to live a spiritual life continue to be asked. We need to continue to ask ourselves those questions. We need to continue to question what form our own spirituality can actually take, what the possibilities in those forms actually are. That questioning is not in any way a rejection of tradition or a denial of tradition. But rather, it is a question that I feel is particularly creative. It is learning to explore the possibilities of practice and of spirituality. This retreat that we're engaging in here certainly is a direct consequence of that questioning. Creating this environment where we not only don't have to divorce ourselves from the world, neither do we have to divorce ourselves from our family to do practice. It's a direct result of that creative inner questioning that people have done. Amidst the seeming con continuity of chaos that goes on in this particular environment, in this retreat, actually something very significant and very important is taking place. We're actually part of the first generation of people in spiritual practice and meditation practice, in this tradition particularly, who are questioning the assumption that family life and a life of Dharma are incompatible. And that's a very major step to take, a very important step to take, to be willing to question that assumption. Because we don't have many models or many sure voices to guide us in that questioning. We're questioning that the assumption that our own spiritual development has to wait until we are free of dependence, because that has been much more the historical belief, that first you do your thing in the world, whatever that might be, creating families, doing your work, and then when you've retired and your children have grown up, then you have the time to pursue your own inner development. I feel this generation of people is really directly questioning whether that kind of postponement actually needs to take place, is actually a truth. I feel we are beginning to question the assumption that it's not possible to live in the world and hold very close to our hearts a real vision of freedom. And we are questioning how to make visible, I feel, our own spiritualities in, in our relationships and in our lives. How to live from moment to moment in our lives in the spirit of freedom. Without that spirit of freedom necessarily being dependent upon a particular form of life to support it. This questioning, I feel, is important, not just for our own development and our own integration, 
but it's very, very important for the whole credibility and viability of the Dharma as it finds its place, as it finds its own place in this culture, in our own world. Through that questioning, I feel, and through our own experience in being here, what is going to be born of that is really a new vision of the Dharma, a new vision of how to practice, and also a new vision of the Sangha, a new vision of what it means to be in a community of people who share similar aspirations, who support you in those aspirations. And two, out of that questioning and out of that creativity is also going to be born a new vision of the path. Not that there's going to be an overthrowing of the path or the teaching, but that there's going to be a deepening of understanding of the ways in which it's actually possible to practice the Dharma, to practice a life of spirituality, to sustain a life of spirituality in the midst of our own lives. Traditionally, in this divorce that has taken place between the spiritual life and the worldly life, Clearly, the spiritual life, in a particular form, is frequently being considered to be more worthy. And it's also being considered somewhat virtuous to actually renounce the world or withdraw from the world in order to seek one's own enlightenment. And the life in the world has also, by that very equation that takes place, being considered to be something less worthy. That a life in the world is automatically a life of attachment and a life of clinging and a life of limitation. And in a life which involves a pursuit possibly of less worthy goals than enlightenment or freedom. Sometimes it's also assumed that one would choose that kind of life because you don't necessarily have the right kind or the right kind of merit to lead a really spiritual life and perhaps in a future lifetime you might have that karma and merit. That separation, although there is some validity in it because many of you have done intensive retreats, I know that there's a great, great value found to actually taking space and time to really look inwardly and to really deepen in understanding, to really nurture one's own wisdom and compassion. And we probably all have experienced that silence and aloneness are very valuable and positive assets in that inner development. And yet I feel this separation, this historical separation that has been made between spirituality the spiritual life and the worldly life has really not contributed to bringing about an end to a world which is very, so very filled with alienated and with warring people. Too often in that divorce, it can, spirituality can become very passive. Because certainly, we've all known that it's much easier to sustain mindfulness, to sustain 
compassion, to sustain loving kindness when we don't actually have to relate to anybody. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes a much easier path. And yet that divorce can often mean that our own spirituality becomes passive, a passivity which is at times justified because we say that we're seeking our enlightenment and afterwards we'll deal with suffering. And yet we probably notice time and time again in our own experience that it's actually a very short step from passivity to indifference. And it's very easy in simply being withdrawn and being removed from the world, simply to lose connection with what we can possibly give, with what possibly we can offer, with what is needed from us in our lives in order to bring about the end of suffering. The messages I feel that we are receiving from our own experience, the messages that we're receiving from the world tell us that we can't necessarily wait for enlightenment in order to contribute towards the end of suffering. That it's very important that this time we are deeply and creatively exploring the ways to make our own spirituality more visible in every single area of our lives. It's very clear to us that we are members of the community of the world. We are members of the community of, the, of human beings. We can't in that afford indifference. We can't actually afford to separate our own spirituality from the world in which we live for one simple reason. Simply because we live in a world where there is immense conflict. And actually, the presence of our own children, I feel, really lends a sense of urgency to our own awareness. The presence of our children is actually a gift that inspires us to actually be more aware, to be more creative in our questioning. The ecology of our world is in such a state of imbalance on every level. The ecology of our world is threatened in such a variety of different words, world, ways. We can see that the ecology of our planet is actually, at this point in our lives, in a state of crisis. It's a crisis that is created through greed. It's created through exploitation. The crisis in the ecology of our planet is created through a lack of sensitivity and a lack of connection. We can see that globally, too, our world is in a state of crisis. How our global relationships are so clearly imbalanced. How we live in a world where there is such a strong atmosphere, too often, where there is suspicion, mistrust, defensiveness, aggressiveness, and we become so overexposed to those qualities in our global relationships, our way of seeing the world, that we almost come to accept them as being the norm. And yet that those very qualities, that very distorted and clouded environment of relationship is again created so clearly 
through the misuse of power, through alienation from the hearts of each other, through a lack of connection individually in our own lives, in the relationships of one-to-one -one with our partners, with friends, with people we meet, with children, we are reminded again and again how very easy it is to really lose that art of connection. How very easy it is to become alienated. How easy it is to lose the skill of actually caring for one another. How many times in our relationships as, as familiarity deepens, as intimacy at times deepens, as our contacts deepen, how often we find within our relationships that there are times when there are fraught with suspicion or competitiveness or expectation, how often we cloud our own relationships and our capacity to connect with our ideas and our models of how we should be, how other people should be, with our desires to control, and with our desires to manipulate. And how often then we breed the, the harvest of those inner qualities. And the harvest of those inner qualities are relationships which too often are lacking in that deep sense of care and sensitivity and acceptance and openness. The imbalance in the ecology that of our world, of our relationships, to me is, is no more than a reflection of the imbalance in our inner ecology. At times we simply don't know anymore how to be at peace within ourselves, how to be connected with our own hearts, how to really know a sense of completeness inwardly, a sense of dignity and integrity within our relationship to our own being. And then it becomes clear to us that it's really not realistic to anticipate that we can extend compassion and loving kindness and acceptance and openness to those around us if we don't actually know how to extend those very qualities of compassion and sensitivity and love towards our own being. Through that outer imbalance, through the inner imbalance of our own ecology, we tend to be bequeathing to our children a certain legacy. It is our children who will inherit the fruits and the harvest of the blindness, of the lack of sensitivity which may come to feature in our own lives. Just as our children also have the possibility of inheriting the legacy of our own sensitivity and care and wisdom. In so many ways, the presence of children around us reveals to us the urgency of being awake reveals to us the urgency of being clear and is a gift in that sense. It's not a pressure, it's not an imposition, but it is a gift and a reminder to our own awareness. It is all too easy for us to become lost in the busyness of our lives, in our doing, in producing, in getting things done, in the very activities that can consume so much time. 
perhaps we are helped not to be lost. Rather, we are helped to be clear in our own values and what we value as being significant by the very presence, by the very gift that our children's presence actually signals to our own awareness. It becomes clear to us that transformation is important inwardly, just as it is outwardly. That compassion inwardly as as significant as trying to develop compassion towards others. That very sense of connection with what is, in, what is important, with what is valuable, I feel it is that very connection which can inspire us to turn inwardly, to really deepen on a moment-to-moment level our own understanding, to deepen on a moment-to-moment level our own sensitivity, to deepen on a moment-to-moment level our own sense of openness and of compassion. At this time in our lives, I feel that we are called upon, as really never before, to integrate our spirituality into every area of our lives, to really look and understand what it means to live with wisdom, what it means to live with compassion. It's not enough, it's never enough, just to be spiritually wise or just to accumulate many experiences, or just even to have a portfolio of retreats that we've done. If we don't know how the art of connection, if we still are yet to discover the art of being present, of being connected inwardly, of touching our own hearts and touching the heart of another, then I feel our spirituality really is yet to begin. A mystic, Christian mystic, once said, of what avail is the open eye if the heart is blind? This is so true in our own experience. Our spiritual history is valid if it helps us to live with wisdom. Our experiences that we may have in meditation are valid if they inspire us to deepen our sense of connection. Our various insights that we have are deeply valid if we are really dedicated to living in accord with them. Our spirituality, I feel, is not qualified by the number of hours we've managed to chalk up on a cushion but rather our spirituality is qualified by our own capacity to live with wisdom and compassion on a moment-to-moment level. There are some things which aren't helpful in bringing about that marriage between the inner and the outer. One of the things which is not helpful to us is carrying a burden of models of how other people should be, of how our own spirituality should manifest. You know, on one level, we are very inspired by the models that we have. You know, whether it's the story of the Buddha, whether it's the story of mystics, whether it's the story of of saints, whether it's the story of people that we know who seem to live a very dedicated and committed life. 
On one level, those stories are wonderfully inspiring and helpful to us. And you know, you may look at the story of, say, Gautama the Buddha, you know, who renounced the world to seek enlightenment. And it, you know, particularly in times of difficulty, you know, when children are screaming and life seems to be falling apart, it can seem a really attractive path. Hmm? But there are other times when actually our models are clearly not helpful to us. Because our models tend to lead us to define very clearly what is spiritual and what is not. Hmm? Our, our definitions of spirituality are created by our thoughts, and yet too often the very thoughts that we create about our spirituality become our reality. You can see it, you know. We can say that sitting on a cushion is spiritual. We feel, oh yes, I'm practicing, I'm sitting on a cushion. Changing a diaper is not spiritual. Being silent, we consider, oh yes, now I'm really engaged in my practice and in, in my development. Well, we may find ourselves in the midst of noise and find ourselves saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. This isn't what practice is all about. And really all that we want to do in that moment is make it conform to our idea of meditation. We may well say, well, doing a retreat, that is a manifestation of my spirituality. It may very well be, but how we live in our work, in our relationships, is clearly just as much a part of our own spirituality. It's so very important that we can see that our minds make these distinctions. And yet those distinctions really lead us to be in certain ways in the world. If we have a model of what is spiritual, then we feel that those times and those moments and those activities are really worthy of our sensitivity, are really worthy of our attention. And if we have made a distinction and we clearly define something as being not spiritual, then we do not consider that to be worthy of our attention and worthy of our sensitivity. It's very important in this practice. Vipassana practice is the practice which could be further uh, described as being the practice in which everything matters. It's a practice in which everything matters. Each moment that we experience is totally worthy and totally deserving of our sensitivity and our awareness. And our spirituality is given life, is actually given life by the sensitivity and the awareness that we bring to the moment. It is not like there is one moment that there is special and another moment that is not special. Those distinctions have no reality apart from our thoughts. The moment is given life it's given richness, it's given vitality by the very qualities of awareness, by the very qualities of sensitivity that we bring to them. If we bring those qualities of awareness and sensitivity to every moment, then we can truly appreciate how rich in understanding, how rich in the possibilities of deepening and wisdom each moment actually is in our lives. If we don't bring that quality of sensitivity and awareness, 
that quality of real appreciation of each moment, then we have these little compartments in our lives that are reserved for wisdom, for deepening in wisdom. You know, I've got seven days for deepening in wisdom, and then I've got, you know, ten months to lose it so that I can come back and deepen it again for another seven days. It's clearly not a satisfactory way of practicing. Our whole sense of practice, our whole sense of the path of the Dharma needs to be so much more expensive and so much deeper than that. We need to know, I feel, not just how to be spiritually awake, but I feel it's very important for us to begin to understand what it means to be awake as a mother, what it means to be awake as a father, what it means to be awake as a partner, what it means to be awake as a person who walks on the earth and is connected with the earth. When we bring that intention to be clear and to be conscious, then the divisions between the inner and the outer, between the spiritual life and the worldly life begin to dissolve. But their dissolution is clearly related to our own dedication to the moment and to learning from what each moment brings to us. Just as we have models often of what spiritual life is or a way of practice is, we very often too hold models of what a spiritual teacher is. Now, there are many people in our lives who have extended to us a relationship in which there's great richness. There's many times when we form a relationship with a particular person who is a teacher that offers us great understanding. And yet I feel there's another leap, a very radical leap that we need to make in our own consciousness to appreciate that our greatest teacher is actually the present moment. The present moment is our mirror. If we bring the willingness to see, the present moment that we experience is our mirror. Our practice reminds us of that. When you go out of this room, you're speaking with people, you're being with people, you're acting, you're doing, you're performing, you're, you're getting things together, you're reacting or you're resisting. The very movements of our own being, the very movements of our own mind are reflected in each moment that we experience. The awareness and the sensitivity that we bring to the moment the capacity to be present, the capacity to be awake that we bring to the moment is what creates that relationship of teaching. I feel if we can establish that relationship with the present moment, we also begin to appreciate that all that we actually need for transformation lies within this moment and lies within ourselves. In this moment in our lives, we have within ourselves life and love and creativity. We have in this moment in our lives the capacity to be present and the capacity to be awake. We have the capacity to be aware. And in times of deepening in wisdom, in deepening in compassion, this is all that we are ever asked to do. This is all that we can do. 
And this is actually all that we need to do, to learn how to be present now in a very open-hearted, in a very mindful way. Is it, there's someone who once said that the, the world is not made of atoms, that the world is actually made of stories. Just as we learn to connect with the present moment, we also need to appreciate how much teaching and how much learning is actually held within our own experience and our own stories. Our life experience and our life story actually embraces the stories of so many beings. We have the capacity to be afraid. We have the capacity to suffer. We have the capacity to experience alienation and pain. This we share with all beings. We have a yearning for peace. We have a yearning for freedom. We have a yearning for dignity and for integrity. This we share with all beings. The time, the moments that we experience in our lives, in a very real way, embrace all time. You could see so many times in our lives how the past and how the future is held within this moment that we're experiencing. Our way of being with ourselves embraces the lives of many people. When we begin to learn from our own stories, we begin to see and understand that we actually know what it is that grieves us. We see what it is that saddens us. We begin to understand what actually does cause conflict in our lives. We also see from our own experience, we begin to understand that we know where we find peace. We know where we find connection. We know where we find love. We know where we find compassion. All of that understanding is held within our own stories, our own life experience. The seeing of that is the first step. It's like the kindergarten of wisdom. By looking into our own lives, by looking into our own experience, we begin to see what it is that we need to develop. We begin to see what it is that we need to let go of. The seeing of that in a very real way is the first step. The second step, I feel, in this practice of the Dharma, this deepening and understanding, is being willing to live in accord with what we see to be true. That means consciously being a willing to nurture and to cultivate and to develop all of those things in our lives and in ourselves which contribute to our own sense of well-being. It also means being consciously willing to let go of and to set aside those things in our lives and in our own being which contribute to a sense of being undermined, to disharmony, to conflict. Our own path becomes actually very clear to us when we do begin to learn from our own stories. Caring for that inner learning is beginning to care for our own inner ecology. It's beginning to contribute to a sense of balance in our own inner ecology. When we see what contributes to suffering, what contributes to well-being, 
when we discard and set aside what contributes to suffering, when we nurture and develop what contributes to wisdom and to compassion, we find that our own inner ecology comes into a state of balance. And when our inner ecology is in a state of balance, we begin to find that we can create that sense of balance in the ecology of our relationships, that we can begin to extend it outwardly, that we can begin to make our lives a visible manifestation of our own inner understanding. When we begin to find spaciousness within ourselves, we also find that we begin to find spaciousness everywhere. When we find compassion within ourselves, we begin to find compassion everywhere. When we begin to find openness within ourselves, we find just how much each moment is clearly offering to us. In that inner balance, I feel, and in making that inner balance visible, there is this marriage of the inner and the outer. There is this merging of spirituality and being in the world. It's a way of being in world in which we treasure our own hearts. It's a way of being in the world in which we are learning, just one step at a time, actually what it means to live in the spirit of freedom. What it means to live in a way which honors our own dignity and integrity and spirit in a way which honors the dignity and spirit and integrity of all of life. May all beings live with sensitivity. May all beings deepen in wisdom. May all beings live with compassion.